0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We want to welcome you to a special, the special program series of AccessibleWorld.org. And the date is Wednesday, January 18, 2012. And we're still wishing, and we always will, wish you a very happy new year from Accessible World. Tonight, uh, our lecturer is Ed Cooney. So you know it's going to be an eventful occasion. Tonight, Wednesday, January 18, 2012, Edwin Cooney, a lifelong student of history, will present the first of a series of documentaries covering the political career and its aftermath of Richard M. Nixon. The January 18th portion will cover Mr. Nixon's career from 19, his 1946 election to Congress, from California's 12th District to his swearing-in, as Vice President on Tuesday, January 20th, 1953. These documentaries will consist largely of speeches and interviews Congressman, senator, vice president, private citizen, president, and ex-president Nixon gave over the years. The first documentary will be broadcast over Accessible World tonight. Listen as Mr. Nixon and his incumbent opponent, discuss Nixon's election to Congress, to material covering the outing and conviction of Alger Hiss and the famous Checkers speech. Accessible World hopes you'll find this a gripping documentary. And without further ado, before we begin our program, let me turn the microphone uh, over to Mr. Cooney.
1: Thank you very much, Bob. I think i need to say three things as bob told you this is a documentary it's the first part of i'm not really sure how many documentaries will do uh but i i need to say first of all this covers 1946 to 19 through 1952 up to the you know, his inauguration as vice president it's 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 hardly a full biography there are things in his career, that that I don't even touch on. For example, the Munt Nixon Bill uh, in 1947. His work on the Taft Hartley Law. He was part of the Labor and Education Committee in in, in the House. Um, his um, he was also on the committee that heard Douglas MacArthur uh, when he came back, or that that took testimony from Douglas MacArthur when he came back from from Korea in 1951. We don't we don't get into that. There's only so much time that we have. I hope it's—I hope you consider it um, comprehensive enough. However, um, the second thing I want to do is to thank Kurt Delzer, who really has made this this thing sing. He really has. And um, <clears throat> I guess the third thing I want to say is that um, any uh, any mistakes, any any misinformation, I'm. Are, are, I'm responsible for that. Nobody else is. Uh, again, I hope you enjoy it. And as Bob suggested we do at the very beginning, uh, let's get the show on the road. Marsha? Richard Nixon Documentary, Part 1, 1946-1953
2: I can only say tonight to you that I believe in the American dream because I have seen it come true in my own life. With
3: faith in America, with faith in her ideals, and in her people, I accept your nomination for President of the United States.
1: Wednesday, July the 27th, 1960, Chicago. Richard M. Nixon accepts the first of three presidential nominations he will receive from the Republican Party. Thursday, January the 9th, 1913, Yorba Linda, a peaceful Quaker community located just a few miles east of Los Angeles, California. There, Richard Milhouse Nixon is born, the second son of Frank and Hannah Milhouse Nixon. Wednesday, November the twenty-eighth, nineteen forty-five, Middle River, Maryland. That day, Lieutenant Commander Richard M. Nixon is reborn, reborn a politician. Earlier that year, a group of Republican businessmen from California's 12th congressional district located just north of Los Angeles, and which included Richard Nixon's birthplace at Yorba Linda, as well as his current residence at Whittier, formed a group they called the Committee of 100. Its chairman was banker Herman Perry. Its goal was to identify and support a candidate who could conceivably unseat five-term New Deal congressman Jerry Voorhees. Nixon, then a 32-year-old naval lawyer, answered the committee's ad. There followed a quick flight to the West Coast so that Nixon could make a presentation before the Committee of 100. Then it was back to Middle River to await the committee's results. In a 1983 interview with former White House aide Frank Gannon, now a broadcaster, Richard Nixon remembered that night of Wednesday, November the 28, 1945, with considerable pride.
3: When I went out and peered before the committee, I made a ten-minute speech, as did the other six candidates. Uh, and I was in my uniform, of course, and uh, I did rather well, apparently. I was the, speech, the last speaker. made the speech in, in uniform? Yes, oh yes. I didn't have a suit, <laughs> not at that time. Uh, and uh, I flew back to uh, uh, Middle River and to continue with my work for the Navy. And uh, late at night, uh, I had a call from a man that I had met out there, Roy Day, who was the Palona representative on the ticket, uh, on that committee. And uh, he shouted on the phone, he said, Dick, the nomination is yours. The committee has voted for you. So much to so many, I remember it was about three to one. Well, of course, I was very excited, but I hadn't heard from Herman Perry. He was the one that didn't call me. About 10 minutes later, Herman Perry called. He told me the same thing, and incidentally, Uh, I practiced then a lesson I learned from my mother many, many years before. I remember once she said that George Washington once said that a gentleman has never heard a joke. And so when Herman told me, it was news. And I have learned that with politics all my life. Uh, Somebody will say, you have won this or that or the other thing. And when he thinks he's telling you for the first time, he is, and you must let him think he is. Mm.
1: And the former president's recollections of the 1946 campaign were oddly personal.
3: We had a tiny little house that we lived in uh, when we were campaigning in that period, right after Tricia was born. And uh, I helped Pat by doing the two o'clock feeding. At times, you get up, and Tricia was was a one that was, was a very good baby. Uh, but once she was awake at two, she wanted to stay the rest of the night. I'd walk and walk. And then finally, when I thought she was asleep, I'd sort of tiptoe back and slip her down on the crib, and then try to sneak back to bed. And, and up she would go. And the other thing that kept her awake were the minks. Our neighbors next door were raising minks. Uh, I think there was a city ordinance it, but that didn't seem to bother them. And you know, minks uh, may make a beautiful coat, uh, but minks as animals are among the most repulsive animals. They stink, uh, they eat their young, uh, they squeal, uh, and the squealing used to keep us awake. But you did win. What was, what I won, was your first no election if, night like? Oh, I remember it very, very well. Roy Day, uh, who was quite a man about town, had uh, invited me uh, to have dinner with him at the Tail of the Cock restaurant. that was his favorite it was over in los angeles someplace i think in beverly hills and so we had dinner early and he said you know you're not going to get the return from the 12th district to very late because you know you have paper ballots in california and so we're going to have district and get home and listen to the rest of them with pat so as we were driving home he had on the car radio and all of a sudden on the car radio they began to go through the congressional districts so he tuned up the radio the volume the 12th district Nixon 536, Voorhees 386, and they yelped and almost hit the curb. I said, oh, I'm afraid that's just from San Marino, because that was our most uh, uh, Republican part of the district. But the trend held, and we won very decis- decisively, about 64,000 to 47,000. How did it feel to be the new congressman, the new Republican congressman from the 12th district at age 32? Well, as you know, I've won a few, lost a few but you remember the ones you won uh, I won for the House, won for the Senate, twice for Vice President, and twice for President, but believe me there's nothing to equal the first time and being the Congressman at 32 years of age and for Pat and for me, I think that was the top, uh, even more so the only thing next to it, i say would be the Presidency in 68 uh, that in its way, of course, nothing could be higher than that but that first win for Congress was the one that left the most lasting and uh, I would say most memorable uh, recollection with us. How did you celebrate it? You know what we did? We went around uh, to the various parties that were being held in the district uh, by those that had had house meetings for us. We couldn't go to all of course. Uh, But I remember we went to Alhambra, we went to Pomona, uh, we, we went all over the district and we got into the last one about two o'clock in the morning and they were still celebrating.
1: Tuesday, June the 4th, 1946 was primary day in the state of California. Candidate Nixon and Representative Voorhees primarily sought support within their two parties. However, due to California's cross-filing law, either man could win both parties' nominations had they sufficient votes in both polls. At the end of the day, Most discouraging to the Nixon campaign was the fact that Jerry Voorhees received 7,000 more votes in the primary than did Richard Nixon. Something had to be done. Following the advice of its newly hired political advisor, Murray Chotner, the Nixon campaign decided it needed to take advantage of the people's increasing concern over the advancement of communism not only throughout Europe, but especially here at home, and if it could, To tie the name and record of Jerry Voorhees to that concern. Unfortunately for Congressman Voorhees, the Nixon campaign had already either discovered or perhaps created a serious political vulnerability in his bid for re-election. It lay in Voorhees' labor support. Was he or was he not receiving support? from the Political Action Committee of the Congress of Industrial Organization, one of the most notoriously left-wing political organizations in the United States. Although Congressman Voorhees was able to establish that he wasn't, in fact, receiving support from the National Political Action Committee of the Congress of Industrial Organization, 12th District newspapers were charging that he was receiving support from its local branch and from some other highly left-wing groups within the district. Congressman Voorhees initially denied the legitimacy of such reports. It all came to a head in the first of five public debates Richard Nixon and Jerry Voorhees would have during the 1946 campaign. Having made the charge, Nixon strolled halfway across the stage to show Congressman Voorhees the endorsements. And while the congressman read the endorsements, Richard Nixon proceeded to read the names of those behind those endorsements. The connection was made. Throughout the remainder of the 1946 campaign, Congressman Voorhees was clearly on the defensive. And while Richard Nixon didn't even come close to referring to the congressman as a communist, not even a socialist, there were many in the Nixon campaign who weren't the least reluctant to do exactly that. If Congressman Voorhees was receiving support from left-wing organizations and didn't know it, what did that say about his competency? his awareness. If he was receiving such support and was concealing it, what did that say about his integrity, or even more, his loyalty? If the congressman from the 12th District of California was primarily influenced by the left wing, what did that say about the quality of representation he was giving the people of his district? The die was cast. Tuesday, November the fifth, 1946, was election day. In California's 12th Congressional District, the day belonged completely to Richard Milhouse Nixon. His vote total was 65,586. There were 49,994 votes in the district for Jerry Voorhees. Richard Nixon's victory was complete, but at what cost to his future? If Richard Nixon's remembrances of that day were personal in one way— Jerry Voorhees' remembrances of that day and time were personal in quite another way.
4: The campaign was altogether different from any campaign that I'd ever fought before. Just before the election, a good many people came and told me, do you know about the telephone calls that are being made? And uh, I said, no, I didn't. Well, they said uh, I was called on the phone by an unidentified person who simply said that Do you know that Jerry Voorhees is a communist, and uh, you should vote for Mr. Nixon because uh, of this fact? And uh, my friend said, I asked who was calling, and they immediately hung up. He charged that I was the fair-haired boy and the picked candidate of the CIO Political Action Committee, and that they were communist-controlled, and therefore that I must be subversive in some way or another. Mr. Chotner was directing the campaign. I believe this material was written by people working in conjunction, at least with Mr. Chopner, and it was sent out to the papers. Now here, for instance, there are two. They have the same head, and they have the same text. These are from two of the principal papers in the larger cities. And it says, "Jerry Voy' a former socialist, warmly supported by the CIO." <coughs> When the opposition has access to all the public press and all you can do is try to send out pamphlets like this and get somebody to distribute them house to house, you're up against a pretty difficult situation. I mean, the people who had been my friends, you know, were suddenly on the other side and telling me that uh, I'd been there long enough and it was time to get rid of me and so on and so forth. That all the stops were pulled and... uh, and Mr. Nixon beat me. He was a good debater. He was a clever debater. Uh, I wouldn't uh, deny that at all. Uh, but uh, uh, I still feel that the there were a good money, good money below the belt blows struck in the campaign.
1: Friday, January the third, nineteen forty-seven. Richard Milhouse Nixon officially becomes a member of the 80th Congress. Wednesday, March the 12th, 1947, President Harry S. Truman comes before Congress seeking aid to Greece and Turkey in order to stop the advancement of communism. He will have Nixon's support. Late summer 1947 is a member of a special subcommittee of the House of Representatives chaired by Christian Herter who will one day be Eisenhower's Secretary of State Nixon visits war-torn Europe and decides to break with many hardcore Republicans and support Harry Truman's containment policy, including the Marshall Plan. In that 1983 interview with Frank Gannon, Nixon is asked what his first impressions were of President Truman.
3: Do you remember the first time you met Harry Truman? Well, i never forget it because it was the first time I was ever in the White House. Uh, having been just elected to Congress in 1946, we were invited to the reception that the president traditionally gave then and even now uh, for the new members of Congress and for that matter all members of Congress. Uh, I remember we had a little bit of a family problem then because we were pretty strapped financially after the campaign Uh, but this this event was black tie for the men and long dresses for the ladies and Mrs. Nixon felt she had to have a new dress and she certainly did have to have one and I said uh, well go ahead she said well I'm going to get it because it's probably the only time we'll ever be in the White House Uh, So she got the new dress, we went. uh, uh, It was a mob scene, of course, with so many there, uh, but we will uh, always remember it. I remember when we met uh, President Truman that uh, he and Mrs. Truman were standing together uh, in the blue room, as I recall, and uh, he shook hands in the way that people often shake hands in receiving lines when they wanted to get you through. He'd take your hand and just push you on to the next one and push you on to the next one, and it went pretty fast. What, uh, what were your impressions of him as a, as a man, or as a president, as a leader? Well, my impressions, I think, were colored a great deal by my first meeting with him. Uh, on this occasion, of course, was not a meeting. It was a handshake. Uh, but in July of that year, that first year of 1947, a group of four freshman Republican congressmen uh, met with Truman in the Oval Office. The way it came about is that Charlie Kirsten from Wisconsin requested an appointment uh, and it was given Uh, incidentally at the time uh, since we were members of Congress we all thought we were important enough to deserve to be invited down to see the president but as I look back at it in retrospect I really marvel that Truman ever did it Uh, but then I think that tells us something about him Uh, he was a very good politician Uh, He knew that the Republicans had an overwhelming majority in the House and in the Senate. He needed Republican votes. Uh, He also knew something else that the four of us, and I'm sure our records were checked before we ever gotten at the Oval Office, had supported uh, the Greek Turkish aid program, whereas many liberal Democrats had opposed it. Uh, He needed uh, us as friends. And then I think he might have been impressed by the fact he just uh, liked the fact that. we had the temerity uh, to ask and so uh, he sort of appreciated that because that's the kind of thing he might have done uh... what were your feelings as you stepped over the threshold of the oval office for the first time well my feelings were of course uh, one of uh, profound respect uh, for that place it's a hallowed place i'd read about it and seen pictures of it uh... but i think my recollection of the meeting is more of the man than of the office uh... uh president Truman before we went there was one who had not received a particularly good press Uh, when he succeeded Franklin D. Roosevelt uh, there were many in the media and many in the country for that matter who said can this little pipsqueak from Missouri uh, poorly educated and so forth step into the shoes of Franklin D. Roosevelt who was a great heroic figure for so many years Uh, and many wondered whether he could. Uh, I would say that Nobody could have filled the shoes of Franklin Roosevelt, but Harry Truman made his own footprints in the sands of history. Uh, At this particular point, however, having read about him as being somewhat uneducated, uh, rather crude, and and rather limited, I was impressed with the fact uh, that uh, he had a sense of history. Uh, He demonstrated that by taking us over to uh, the globe, which was there in the office, and uh, turning it to Manchuria. And pointing out, which was quite prophetic at that time, how important Manchuria, in terms of its natural resources, could be in the future. And how important that whole area of China uh, could be in the future for this country and for the world, for that matter. And then he turned the globe a little further to the Soviet Union. He said, you know, I I like the Russian people. They got along very well, the Russian soldiers did, with our soldiers at the Elbe." He said, as far as I'm concerned, they can have any kind of a system they want provided they don't try to impose it on us Uh, he spoke uh, uh, not in a dramatic way but uh, almost in a matter of fact way that the most difficult decision he'd ever made was to drop the atomic bomb a decision which I think incidentally was his greatest decision the most courageous one and was totally right Uh, I would say too that in terms of his manner at that point before he was elected in his own right in 1948 Uh, He was somewhat humble, uh, very direct, uh, but not at all overbearing, not at all cocky, uh, as he sometimes later came to be. Uh, So all in all, I would say that he made a good personal impression on all of us. Uh, I thought right then uh, that those that criticized him because of his lack of education failed to recognize uh, a truth which I have always felt uh, was the case where many leaders are concerned. Education sometimes can strengthen the brain and weaken the backbone. Uh, Harry Truman had a pretty good brain, but I can say that his backbone was strong, and that's what sustained him through those years.
1: Tuesday, August the 3rd, 1948, and the Dewey Truman quest for the presidency was already underway.
2: In all humility, I accept the nomination. I am happy to be able to say to you that I come to you unfettered by a single obligation or promise to any living person. I accept the nomination.
5: (laughs) Senator
4: Barclay and I will win this election and make these Republicans like it, don't you forget that.
1: On that sultry summer day in Washington, D.C., the House Un-American Activities Committee, of which Richard Nixon was the most junior member on the Republican side, the majority side, received testimony from J. David Whittaker Chambers, currently a senior editor at Time magazine, that between 1924 and 1938 he had been a member of the Communist Party and that one of his fellow travelers had been Alger Hiss, a former member of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's State Department. Hiss had actually accompanied the president on that controversial trip to Yalta in 1945. Alger Hiss, who was currently serving as president of the Carnegie Foundation's Endowment on International Peace, demanded the right to immediately reply to Chambers' charges. He appeared before the committee on Thursday, August the 5th.
4: My name is Alger Hiss. I am here at my own request to deny unqualifiedly various statements about me which were made before this committee by one Whitaker Chambers day before yesterday. I am not and never have been a member of the Communist Party. To the best of my knowledge, I never heard of Whitaker Chambers' until in 1947 when two representatives of the federal bureau of investigation asked me if i knew him and various other people i said i did not know chambers so far as i am aware i have never laid eyes on him and i should like to have the opportunity to do so
1: so compelling was the hiss testimony that most members of the committee were inclined to leave the matter where it lay for Richard Nixon, however, the surface of his, his testimony was too smooth. The details, too qualified. Hence, young Nixon sought and received from Committee Chairman Parnell Thomas of New Jersey permission to head a subcommittee to pursue the case. My full
6: name is J. David Whitaker Chambers. I'm a senior editor at Time. I was a member of the Communist Party from 1924
4: until about 19, until 1937
3: or eight. You were very fond of Mr. Hiss? Indeed I was. He was perhaps my closest
6: friend. Certainly the closest friend I ever had in the Communist Party. We were close friends, but we are caught in a tragedy
1: of history. Finally, on Wednesday, August the 25th, 1948, the two men met each other in public session.
0: Mr. Hiss, uh, would you kindly stand up, please?
5: Uh, Mr. Chambers, would you stand up? Mr. Hiss, have you ever seen this individual who is standing? I have. Do you know him?
4: I identify him. As Luke as George Crosby. Mr. Hiss represents the concealed enemy against which we are all fighting and I am fighting. I've testified against him with remorse
1: and pity. September of 1948 found both Hiss and Chambers in court due to a defamation of character charge brought by Hiss against Chambers. By strategically releasing documentation of his Marxist association with Alger Hiss during the discovery phase of the defamation of character trial, by mid-fall it was increasingly clear that Whitaker Chambers had the goods on Alger Hiss. November 1948, and the Justice Department indicts Hiss on two counts of perjury. Reenter the House Un-American Activities Committee. With Whitaker Chambers' full cooperation, the House Un-American Activities Committee proceeds to subpoena all of the documents within Chambers' possession. These will forever be known as the Pumpkin Papers, a set of microfilms concealed and buried in a pumpkin on Whitaker Chambers' farm. If those pumpkin papers ultimately revealed that both Alger Hiss and Whitaker Chambers had been guilty of espionage, although the statute of limitations had run out on their crime some years ago, in the minds of many, the very existence of those papers revealed another fact, that Richard Milhouse Nixon, the 35-year-old congressman from California's 12th congressional district, was that rare thing, a political hero.
3: I am holding in my hand a microfilm of very highly confidential secret
6: State Department documents. These documents were fed out of the State Department over ten years ago by communists who were employees
2: of that department and who were interested in seeing that these documents were sent to the Soviet Union.
1: January 1950, New York. Alger Hiss is convicted by a federal jury of two counts of perjury. He is sentenced to five years. He will serve 44 months. Whitaker Chambers comments.
6: I hope the American people will realize the debt that they owe to this jury, to Mr. Murphy, and to the tireless and splendid efforts of the FBI. Nor should they forget Congressman Nixon of California, who almost single-handedly Forced the House Committee on Un-American Activities to pursue the Hiss investigation.
1: By the end of 1948, re-elected without opposition from California's 12th congressional district and flush with the Hiss victory, Richard Nixon could hardly be criticized if he was looking for new worlds to conquer. There was one just ahead, coming up in 1950. One of California's seats in the United States Senate. Sunday, June twenty-fifth, 1950. Without provocation or warning, a surprise to absolutely everybody, North Korean forces crossed the 38th parallel into South Korea. Their goal is to unite the entire peninsula under their Marxist leader, Kim Il-sung. Meanwhile, in the state of California, both political parties have made their choices for election to the United States Senate. The Republicans' choice is Richard Milhouse Nixon. The Democratic Party's choice is liberal Congresswoman Helen Gahagan Douglas, the wife of actor Melvin Douglas, who makes no apologies for her allegiance to the left wing of the Democratic Party. As Richard Nixon and his trusty political adviser Murray Chotner see it, their task in 1950 is exactly what they faced in 1946 when they were running against Jerry Voorhees. That is, to tie Helen Gahagan Douglas' beliefs, name, and reputation to that which most concerns the people of the state of California. In 1946, communism was only a vague threat, although a powerfully politically convenient one. But in 1950, American boys were dying in Korea fighting communism. Hence the questions might Helen Gahagan Douglas's beliefs and political record actually be a hindrance to our boys in Korea? Might they, however inadvertently, actually be giving aid and comfort to our communist enemies? California Democratic Congressman Phil Burton remembers that time very well indeed.
6: Nixon's campaign through the course of uh, the senatorial contest in 1950 uh, uh, looked to me to be uh, uh, just more of the same that he found to be successful in in defeating uh, Voorhees in 1946. Red baiting, pure and simple, and character assassination. Nixon was trying to leave the impression that somehow Helen was soft on communism, if not a communist or a subversive, and that we were fighting communists in Korea, and somehow Helen uh, was significantly responsible for the, the deaths or the uh, injuries that the American fighting men were sustaining and suffering in the, uh, in the Korean conflict.
1: Late in the contest, the Nixon campaign brought out its infamous pink sheet. Written on pink paper, it was Helen Gahagan Douglas' voting record in Congress, and it tied her to every left-wing cause and every left-wing politician, specifically to Vito Marcantonio, Brooklyn's outspoken socialist member of Congress. She's pink right down to her underwear, Nixon was quoted as privately observing. The pink sheet worked. Tuesday, November the 7th, 1950, by some 680,000 votes, Richard Nixon defeats Helen Gahagan Douglas. He's on his way to the United States Senate and perhaps even higher. Friday, July the 11th, 1952, from the International Amphitheater in Chicago, Richard Nixon hears the following two statements. The first by Republican Convention Chairman Joe Martin. The second by Republican presidential nominee, Dwight D. Eisenhower.
4: Chair declares Richard M. Nixon, Republican nominee for vice president, by acclamation. May I have the temerity to congratulate this convention on the selection of their nominee for vice president, a man who has shown statesmanlike qualities in many ways but as a special talent, an ability to ferret out any kind of subversive influence wherever it may be found, and the strength and persistence to
6: get rid of it.
1: Sweet as it all was, the political honeymoon was rather short. Early September 1952, a report in the New York Post.
6: I'm Jimmy Wexler. I'm now editorial page editor and columnist for the Post. In fifty-two, I was in charge of the news department of the paper at the time the story came in. Uh, it was filed by our West Coast correspondent, Leo Catcher, and uh, it seemed to be quite a big story, although I don't really think we anticipated what its repercussions would be. In fact, I can remember now, uh, sort of whimsically, that instead of making it what we call the wood the big page one had, we had a line on top of page one, which I think read something like, Reveal Nixon Fun." Uh, and it it blew up very fast, of course, and the essence of the story simply was that there was a group of uh, industrially financial people, real estate and other special oil interests in California who provided what I guess we referred to editorially as a fund for the care and feeding of Richard Nixon.
1: James Haggerty, press secretary to candidate Eisenhower.
6: General Eisenhower issued the following statement. I have long admired and applauded Senator Nixon's
3: American faith and his determination to drive communist sympathizers from offices of public trust. There has recently been leveled against him a charge of unethical practices. I believe Dick Nixon to be an honest man.
0: What he did was to say to me in effect, Dick, take your case to the American people.
3: Bring out all the facts. Tell the truth. And then we will make the decision as to what should be done.
1: Tuesday, September the 23rd, 1952, the famous Checkers speech. I present it here in its entirety because I believe it to be the singly most revealing speech of Richard Nixon's career. We see him as a politician, as a husband, as a father, and as a man.
2: My fellow Americans, I come before you tonight as a candidate for the Vice Presidency and as a man whose honesty and and integrity has been questioned. Now, the usual political thing to do when charges are made against you is to either ignore them or to deny them without giving details. I believe we've had enough of that in the United States, particularly with the present administration in Washington, D.C. To me, the office of the Vice Presidency of the United States is a great office, And I feel that the people have got to have confidence in the integrity of the men who run for that office and who might obtain it. I have a theory, too, that the best and only answer to a smear or to an honest misunderstanding of the facts is to tell the truth. And that's why I'm here tonight. I want to tell you my side of the case. I'm sure that you have read the charge and you've heard it. That I, Senator Nixon, took $18,000 from a group of my supporters. Now, was that wrong? And let me say that it was wrong. I'm saying, incidentally, that it was wrong, not just illegal. Because it isn't a question of whether it was legal or illegal. That isn't enough. The question is, was it morally wrong? I say that it was morally wrong. If any of that $18,000 went to Senator Nixon for my personal use. I say that it was morally wrong if it was secretly given and secretly handled. And I say that it was morally wrong if any of the contributors got special favors for the contributions that they made. And now to answer those questions, let me say this. Not one cent of the $18,000 or any other money of that type ever went to me for my personal use. Every penny of it was used to pay for political expenses that I did not think should be charged to the taxpayers of the United States. It was not a secret fund. As a matter of fact, when I was on Meet the Press, some of you may have seen it last Sunday, Peter Edson came up to me after the program, and he said, Dick, what about this fund we hear about? And I said, well, there's no secret about it go out and see Dana Smith, who was the administrator of the fund. And I gave him his address. And I said, you will find that the purpose of the fund simply was to defray political expenses that I did not feel should be charged to the government. And third, let me point out, and I want to make this particularly clear, that no contributor to this fund, no contributor to any of my campaigns, has ever received any consideration that he would not have received as an ordinary constituent. I just don't believe in that. And I can say that never, while I have been in the Senate of the United States, as far as the people that contributed to this fund of concern, have I made a telephone call for them to an agency, or have I gone down to an agency in their behalf. And the records will show that, the records which are in the hands of the administration. Well, then, some of you will say, and rightly, well, what did you use the fund for, Senator? Why did you have to have it? Let me tell you in just a word how a Senate office operates. First of all, a Senator gets $15,000 a year in salary. He gets enough money to pay for one trip a year, a round trip, that is, for himself and his family between his home and Washington, D.C. And then he gets an allowance to handle the people that work in his office, to handle his mail, and the allowance for my state of California is enough to hire 13 people. And let me say, incidentally, that that allowance is not paid to the senator. It's paid directly to the individuals that the senator puts on his payroll. But all of these people and all of these allowances are for strictly official business. Business, for example, when a constituent writes in and wants you to go down to the Veterans Administration and get some information about his GI policy. Items of that type, for example. But there are other expenses which are not covered by the government. And I think I can best discuss those expenses by asking you some questions. Do you think that when I or any other senator makes a political speech has it printed, should charge the printing of that speech and the mailing of that speech to the taxpayers? Do you think, for example, when I or any other senator makes a trip to his home state to make a purely political speech, that the cost of that trip should be charged to the taxpayers? Do you think when a senator makes political broadcasts or political television broadcasts, radio or television? at the expense of those broadcasts should be charged to the taxpayers. Well, I know what your answer is. It's the same answer that audiences give me whenever I discuss this particular problem. The answer is no. The taxpayer shouldn't be required to finance items which are not official business, but which are primarily political business. Well, then the question arises, you say, well, how do you pay for these, and how can you do it legally? And there are several ways that it can be done, incidentally and that it is done legally in the United States Senate and in the Congress. The first way is to be a rich man. I don't happen to be a rich man, so I couldn't use that one. Another way that is used is to put your wife on the payroll. Let me say, incidentally, that my opponent, my opposite number for the vice presidency of the Democratic ticket, does have his wife on the payroll, and has had it, her on his payroll, for the 10 years, for the past 10 years. Now, just let me say this. That's his business, and I'm not critical of him for doing that. You will have to pass judgment on that particular point. But I have never done that for this reason. I have found that there are so many deserving stenographers and secretaries in Washington that needed the work that I just didn't feel it was right to put my wife in the payroll. My wife's sitting over here, she's a wonderful stenographer. She used to teach stenography and she used to teach shorthand in high school. That was when I met her. And I can tell you folks that she's worked many hours at night and many hours on Saturdays and Sundays in my office. And she's done a fine job. And I'm proud to say tonight that in the six years I've been in the House and the Senate of the United States, Pat Nixon has never been on the government payroll. What are other ways that these finances can be taken care of? Some who are lawyers, and I happen to be a lawyer, continue to practice law. But I haven't been able to do that. I'm so far away from California that I've been so busy with my senatorial work that I have not engaged in any legal practice. And also, as far as law practice was concerned, It seemed to me that the relationship between an attorney and a client was so personal that you couldn't possibly represent a man as an attorney and then have an unbiased view when he presented his case to you in the event that he had one before the government. And so I felt that the best way to handle these necessary political expenses of getting my message to the American people And the speeches I made, the speeches that I had printed for the most part, concerned this one message of exposing this administration, the communism in it, the corruption in it. The only way that I could do that was to accept the aid which people in my home state of California who contributed to my campaign and who continued to make these contributions after I was elected were glad to make. And let me say I'm proud of the fact that not one of them has ever asked me for a special favor. I'm proud of the fact that not one of them has ever asked me to vote on a bill other than in my own conscience would dictate. And I'm proud of the fact that the taxpayers, by subterfuge or otherwise, have never paid one dime for expenses which I thought were political and shouldn't be charged to the taxpayers. Let me say, incidentally, that some of you may say, well, that's all right, Senator. That's your explanation. But have you got any proof? And I'd like to tell you this evening that just an hour ago, we received an independent audit of this entire fund. I suggested to Governor Sherman Adams, who is the chief of staff of the Dwight eisenhower campaign, that an independent audit and legal report be obtained. And I have that audit here in my hand. It's an audit made by the Price Waterhouse & Company firm, and the legal opinion by Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher, lawyers in Los Angeles, the biggest law firm, and incidentally, one of the best ones in Los Angeles. I'm proud to be able to report to you tonight that this audit and this legal opinion is being forwarded to General Eisenhower. And I'd like to read to you the opinion that was prepared by Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher, and based on all the pertinent laws and statutes, together with the audit report prepared by the Certified Public Accountants. Quote, It is our conclusion that Senator Nixon did not obtain any financial gain from the collection and disbursement of the fund by Dana Smith, that Senator Nixon did not violate any federal or state law by reason of the operation of the fund, and that neither the portion of the fund paid by Dana Smith directly to third persons nor the portion paid to Senator Nixon to reimburse him for designated office expenses constituted income to the senator which was either reportable or taxable as income under applicable tax laws. Signed, Gibson, Dunn, and Crutcher by Elmo H. Conley. Now that, my friends, is not Nixon speaking. But that's an independent audit which was requested because I want the American people to know all the facts and I'm not afraid of having independent people go in and check the facts. And that is exactly what they did. But then I realize that there are still some who may say, and rightfully so, and let me say that I recognize that some will continue to smear, regardless of what the truth may be, but that there has been, understandably, some honest misunderstanding on this matter. And there are some that will say, well, maybe you were able, Senator, to fake this thing? How can we believe what you say? After all, is there a possibility that maybe you got some sums in cash? Is there a possibility that you may have feathered your own nest? And so now, what I am going to do, and incidentally, this is unprecedented in the history of American politics, I am going at this time to give to this television and radio audience audience. A complete financial history. Everything I've earned. Everything I've spent. Everything I owe. And I want you to know the facts. I'll have to start early. I was born in 1913. Our family was one of modest circumstances and most of my early life was spent in a store out in East Whittier. It was a grocery store, one of those family enterprises The only reason we were able to make it go was because my mother and dad had five boys and we all worked in the store. I worked my way through college and to a great extent through law school. And then in 1940, probably the best thing that ever happened to me happened. I married Pat, who's sitting over here. We had a rather difficult time after we were married, like so many of the young couples who may be listening to us. I practiced law. She continued to teach school. Then in 1942, I went into the service. Let me say that my service record was not a particularly unusual one. I went to the South Pacific. I guess I'm entitled to a couple of battle stars. I got a couple of letters of commendation, but I was just there when the bombs were falling. And then I returned. Returned to the United States. And in 1946, I ran for the Congress. When we came out of the war, Pat and I, Pat, during the war, had worked as a stenographer and in a bank and as an economist for a government agency. And when we came out, the total of our savings from both my law practice, her teaching, and all the time that I was in the war, the total for that entire period was just a little less than $10,000. Every cent of that, incidentally, was in government bonds. Well, that's where we start when I go into politics. Now, what have I earned since I went into politics? Well, here it is. I've jotted it down. Let me read the notes. First of all, I've had my salary as a congressman and as a senator. Second, I have received a total in this past six years of $1,600 from estates which were in my law firm at the time that I severed my connection with it. And incidentally, as I said before, I have not engaged in any legal practice and have not accepted any fees from business that came into the firm after I went into politics. I have made an average of approximately $1,500 a year from non-political speaking engagements and lectures. And then fortunately, we've inherited a little money. Pat sold her interest in her father's estate for $3,000, and I inherited $1,500 from my grandfather. We lived rather modestly. For four years, we lived in an apartment in Park Fairfax in Alexandria, Virginia. The rent was $80 a month, and we saved for the time that we could buy a house. Now, that was what we took in. What did we do with this money? What do we have today to show for? This will surprise you because it is so little, I suppose, as standards generally go of people in public life. First of all, we've got a house in Washington which cost $41,000 and in which we owe $20,000. We have a house in Whittier, California, which cost $13,000 and on which we owe $3,000. My folks are living there at the present time. I have just $4,000 in life insurance, plus my G.I. policy, which I've never been able to convert and which will run out in two years. I have no life insurance whatever on Pat. I have no life insurance on our two youngsters, Tricia and Julie. I own a 1950 Oldsmobile car. We have our furniture. We have no stocks and bonds of any type. We have no interest of any kind, direct or indirect, in any business. Now, that's what we have. What do we owe? Well, in addition to the mortgage, the $20,000 mortgage on the house in Washington, the $10,000 one on the house in Whittier, I owe $4,500 to the Riggs Bank in Washington, D.C., with interest of 4.5%. I owe $3,500 to my parents and the interest on that loan which I pay regularly because it's the part of the savings they made through the years they were working so hard, I pay regularly 4% interest. And then I have a $500 loan which I have on my life insurance. Well, that's about it. That's what we have, and that's what we owe. It isn't very much, but Pat and I have the satisfaction that Every dime that we've got is honestly ours. I should say this, that Pat doesn't have a mink coat, but she does have a respectable Republican cloth coat, and I always tell her that she'd look good in anything. One other thing I probably should tell you, because if I don't, they'll probably be saying this about me too, we did get something, a gift, after the election. A man down in Texas heard Pat in the radio mention the fact that our two youngsters would like to have a dog. And believe it or not, the day before we left on this campaign trip, we got a message from the Union Station in Baltimore saying they had a package for us. We went down to get it. You know what it was? It was a little Cocker Spaniel dog in a crate that he'd sent all the way from Texas. Black and white, spotted. And our little girl, Tricia, the six-year-old, named it Checkers. And you know, the kids, like all kids, love the dog. And I just want to say this right now, that regardless of what they say about it, we're going to keep it. It isn't easy to come before a nationwide audience and bear your life, as I've done. But I want to say some things before I conclude that I think most of you will agree on. Mr. Mitchell, the chairman of the Democratic National Committee, made the statement that if a man couldn't afford to be in the United States Senate, he shouldn't run for the Senate. And I just want to make my position clear. I don't agree with Mr. Mitchell when he says that only a rich man should serve his government in the United States Senate. Are in the Congress. I don't believe that represents the thinking of the Democratic Party. And I know that it doesn't represent the thinking of the Republican Party. I believe that it's fine that a man like Governor Stevenson, who inherited a fortune from his father, can run for president. But I also feel that it's essential in this country of ours that a man of modest means can also run for president. Because, you know... Remember Abraham Lincoln. You remember what he said. God must have loved the common people. He made so many of them. And now I'm going to suggest some courses of conduct. First of all, you have read in the papers about other funds now. Mr. Stevenson apparently had a couple. One of them in which a group of business people paid and helped to supplement the salaries of state employees. Here is where the money went directly into their pockets. And I think that what Mr. Stevenson should do should be to come before the American people as I have. Give the names of the people that contributed to that fund. Give the names of the people who put this money into their pockets at the same time that they were receiving money from their state government. And see what favors, if any, they gave out for that. I don't condemn Mr. Stevenson for what he did. But until the facts are in, there is a doubt that will be raised. And as far as Mr. Sparkman is concerned, I would suggest the same thing. He's had his wife on the payroll. I don't condemn him for that. But I think that he should come before the American people and indicate what outside sources of income he has had. I would suggest that under the circumstances, both Mr. Sparkman and Mr. Stevenson should come before the American people as I have and make a complete financial statement as to their financial history. And if they don't, it will be an admission that they have something to hide. And I think you will agree with me. Because folks, remember, a man that's to be President of the United States, a man that's to be Vice President of the United States, must have the confidence of all the people. And that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. And that's why I suggest that Mr. Stevenson and Mr. Spartman, since they are under attack, should do what they're doing. Now, let me say this. I know that this is not the last of the smears. In spite of my explanation tonight, other smears will be made. Others have been made in the past. And the purpose of the smears, I know, is this. To silence me. To make me let up. Well, they just don't know who they're dealing with. I'm going to tell you this. I remember in the dark days of the case. Some of the same columnists, some of the same radio commentators who are attacking me now and misrepresenting my position were violently opposing me at the time I was after Alger Hiss. But I continued to fight because I knew I was right. And I can say to this great television and radio audience that I have no apologies to the American people for my part in putting Alger Hiss where he is today. And as far as this is concerned, I intend to continue to fight. Why do I feel so deeply? Why do I feel that in spite of the smears, the misunderstanding, the necessity for a man to come up here and bear his soul as I have, why is it necessary for me to continue this fight? And I want to tell you why. Because you see, I love my country. And I think my country is in danger. And I think the only man that can save America at this time is the man that's running for president on my ticket, Dwight Eisenhower. You say, why do I think it's in danger? And I say, look at the record. Seven years of the Truman-Acheson administration and what's happened. 600 million people lost to the communists. And a war in Korea in which we have lost 117,000 American casualties. And I say to all of you, that a policy that results in a loss of 600 million people to the communists and a war which cost us 117,000 American casualties isn't good enough for America. And I... And I know that Dwight Eisenhower will do that, and that he will give America the leadership that it needs. Take the problem of corruption. You read about the mess in Washington. Mr. Stevenson can't clean it up because he was picked by the man, Truman, under whose administration the mess was made. You wouldn't trust the man who made the mess to clean it up. That's Truman. And by the same token, you can't trust the man who was picked by the man that made the mess to clean it up. And that's Stevenson. And so I say, Eisenhower, who owes nothing to Truman, nothing to the big city bosses, he is the man that can clean up the mess in Washington. Take communism. I say that as far as that subject is concerned, the danger is great to America. In the Hiss case, they got the secrets, which enabled them to break the American secret State Department code. They got secrets in the atomic bomb case, which enabled them to get the secret of the atomic bomb five years before they would have gotten it by their own devices. And I say that any man who called the Alger Hiss case a red herring isn't fit to be president of the United States. I say that a man who, like Mr. Stevenson, has poo-pooed and ridiculed the communist threat in the United States, he said that they are phantoms among ourselves. He has accused us that have attempted to expose the communists of looking for communists in the Bureau of Fisheries and Wildlife. I say that a man who says that isn't qualified to be president of the United States. And I say that the only man who can lead us in this fight to rid the government of both those who are communists and those who have corrupted this government is Eisenhower. Because Eisenhower, you can be sure, recognizes the problem and he knows how to deal with it. Now let me say that finally this evening I want to read to you just briefly excerpts from a letter which I received a letter which, after all this is over, no one can take away from us. It reads as follows. Dear Senator Nixon, Since I'm only 19 years of age, I can't vote in this presidential election, but believe me, if I could, you and General Eisenhower would certainly get my vote. My husband is in the fleet marines in Korea. He's a corpsman on the front lines, and we have a two-month-old son. He's never seen And I feel confident that with great Americans like you and General Eisenhower in the White House, lonely Americans like myself will be united with their loved ones now in Korea. I only pray to God that you won't be too late. Enclosed is a small check to help you in your campaign. Living on $85 a month, it is all I can afford at present. But let me know what else I can do. Folks, it's a check for $10. And it's one that I will never cash. And just let me say this. We hear a lot about prosperity these days. But I say, why can't we have prosperity built on peace rather than prosperity built on war? Why can't we have prosperity and an honest government in Washington, D.C. at the same time? Believe me, we can. And Eisenhower is the man that can lead this crusade to bring us that kind of prosperity. And now, finally, I know that you wonder whether or not I am going to stay on the Republican ticket or resign. Let me say this. I don't believe that I ought to quit because I am not a quitter. And incidentally, Pat's not a quitter. After all, her name was Patricia Ryan and she was born on St. Patrick's Day and you know the Irish never quit. But the decision, my friends, is not mine. I would do nothing that would harm the possibilities of Dwight Eisenhower to become president of the United States. And for that reason, I am submitting to the Republican National Committee tonight through this television broadcast the decision which it is theirs to make. Let them decide whether my position on the ticket will help or hurt. And I'm going to ask you to help them decide. Wire and write the Republican National Committee whether you think I should stay on or whether I should get off. And whatever their decision is, I will abide by it. But just let me say this last word. Regardless of what happens, I'm going to continue this fight. I'm going to campaign up and down in America until we drive the crooks and the communists and those that defend them out of Washington. And remember, folks, Eisenhower is a great man, believe
1: me. Ike watched Nixon's address in Cleveland.
6: I have seen many... Brave men in tough situations. I have never seen any come through in better fashion than Senator Nixon did tonight. I would rather have a courageous and honest man by my side than a whole boxcar full of pussyfooters.
1: With Ike's blessing and an overwhelmingly positive response to the speech, Richard Nixon would remain on the ticket. The campaign would go on.
3: Let's take a look at corruption. You know, it ranges all the way from
2: petty political larceny to grand government theft. And as far as corruption is concerned, I want to make this one point very clear. I worked for the government for nine months during 1942. Mrs. Nixon worked for the government in San Francisco while I was in service overseas. I am proud of the fact that I once worked for the federal government. I am proud of the millions of fine, good, honest, decent, loyal people that work for the federal government. And I say that the best thing that can be done for them is to kick out the crooks and the others that have besmirched their reputations in Washington, D.C., and that's what we're going to do.
1: Tuesday, November the 4th, 1952, the Nixon-Eisenhower victory is complete. 34,075,529 votes, 55.18% of the national vote, 442 electoral votes. For Stevenson-Sparkman, it's 27,375,090, 44.33% of the national vote, 89 electoral votes. As Richard Milhouse Nixon prepared to take the vice-presidential oath of office on January the 20th of 1953, he was surely aware that he would be the second youngest vice-president in American history, passed only by 37-year-old John C. Breckinridge, who took the vice-presidential oath of office under President James Buchanan on March the 4th, 1857. Would the new young vice-president become a statesman or a politician? or perhaps a bit of both. Did he have what it takes to confront the major issues, foreign and domestic, facing his party and his country, thereby becoming an influential leader? Or might he fade into political obscurity? Only time would tell. It was all up to Richard Milhouse Nixon.
3: This documentary has been created and produced by Edwin Cooney.
2: Your audio editor has been Curtis Delzer.
1: Anybody else want to react to the speech or react to anything in the uh, documentary. I'll I'll hold off on my conclusion. Well, I want to,
5: this is Muhammad, I want to make a comment and um, then ask a question. You know, it's kind of interesting, I was listening to the checker speech, Um, I've heard it before, but it was kind of different for some reason tonight. I, I guess I paid closer attention to it. And one of the interesting things I think from a historical point of view and I, I always wonder about this how people have a tendency, politicians have a tendency to um, and I wonder if it, it's because it, it, it connects with the people to invoke their animals you know uh, FDR did Fala, um Nixon did Checkers and Clinton back in the 90s when there was some discussion about uh, him, him accepting gifts uh, had his uh, dog I think it was called Socks or something like that anyway Uh, That's just my comment, but the question is, um, I read a a biography of Alger Hiss uh, about two years ago, and uh, they basically um, released the pumpkin papers, and what came out with the pumpkin papers is that uh, several of the reels were blank. There was absolutely nothing on the microfilm, and... uh, the other uh, parts of the pumpkin papers were basically totally innocuous uh, uh, documents. Um, Now, uh, even though the subcommittee has been defunct for, what, about 60 years now, um, they still won't release the proceedings of that subcommittee. Uh, My question is, uh, do you believe that uh, Richard Nixon knew that, okay, I believe that Alger Hiss was railroaded. Uh, do you believe that Richard Nixon knew that Hiss was being railroaded and that he just um, used Alger Hiss uh, in order to advance his own political career, even though he was prepared to railroad a possible, possibly innocent man um, for his own political purposes?
1: Well, Muhammad, I don't think that Alger Hiss was innocent. <clears throat> um, and, of course, I don't have any more specialized information than you have. In fact, uh, I thought I sent it to you, but there's a, there is on YouTube an interview with a very liberal uh, writer. I um, can't remember her name. First name is Susan. can't remember her last name. And she concedes, and most people concede, that there was Alger Hiss was guilty. Um... As I understand it, the Pumpkin Papers did have memos from the State Department that were issued through a Colonel Buck to a, through Alger Hiss to a, Bert, to a Colonel Bykov, um, whom they met with in, in 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 Central Park. This was in 1938, mind you. This was before World War II. I don't know that, um, as Nixon said in the in the uh, in the um, his, his I can't remember this speech that, that oh in yeah in his uh, checker speech that the uh, the codes to the state the codes to the state department were 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 um, revealed in 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 what amounts to the pumpkin papers as I say that was 1938 and furthermore as we point out uh, you know the, the statute of limitations on the on the the treason um, had run out by 1948 when it was investigated.
0: But apparently there were signatures.
1: There were documents revealed in those papers which uh, <clears throat> substantiate, certainly, made the connection that uh, Alger Hiss lied to the House Un-American Activities Committee about his association with, with, um, with Whittaker Chambers. And uh, uh, rem- remember, when they meet, he identifies uh, Ch- uh, Hiss identifies Chambers as George Crosley. Um, and that was apparently an alias that uh, that Alger Hiss or that Whitaker Chambers used when he was a he was a member of the Communist Party. I I I, I think I think no I think um, I think I think Hiss was guilty.